0: The Lord be with you, everyone. And I want to share a scripture from Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. Well, let me read from verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, which is where The apostles were staying, apparently. They were seeking to bring them, that's the apostles, Paul and those who traveled with him, out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have, and in my translation here, the New American Standard, it says, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And other earlier translations have those who have turned the world upside down. Uh, and they then say that uh, Jason has welcomed these people. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. It's a great insight into how the world, the days of the New Testament, Understood and felt the impact of this message that we call today the gospel and how they looked at the people that today we call Christians. It says that they turned the world upside down. It says that they have come, and another translation is they have thrown the civilized world into confusion. What a statement! Or yet another possible translation is these people are out to destroy our world, attacking everything that we hold dear. This is how, I say again, the world in the days of the New Testament understood and looked at these people that would be called the church. They were believers who called themselves in those days the people of the way. This is putting the finger on this whole message we call the gospel, this good news that is in Jesus. These people, they really did it. They put their finger on the pulse of it, and they said these people are turning our world inside out. They're upsetting all that our world calls normal. And therefore, they're bringing it down. They're throwing our civilized world, our society, into utter confusion. Or another word for that, they were calling the first believers revolutionaries. And I want to spend possibly another few weeks on this text or what this text is saying and to talk about the fact that we believers are, in fact, love revolutionaries. That's who we are. The word revolution, let me give you at least what Webster uh, would say. It means to turn over. That is something that has been set, has now been unset, and turned over. It means to bring about a complete, basic change. Everything from the ground up is changed. That's revolution. Or another definition would be to replace a present order of things. Or yet another would be to alter radically and drastically everything that is. I, I think if... If you understand the New Testament, that's a good description of what this gospel and those who had received into them very selves the spirit of that gospel, that's exactly what they did wherever they went. So much so that it ended up that they actually took over the Roman Empire and changed it. This, though, that we're talking about, understand this very carefully, This, I would say, is the revolution. You see, the history of the world is really the history of revolutions. That's uh, We won't go into that, but it's a fact that we come to where we are today after a series of revolutions. But all those revolutions, now hear me carefully, all those revolutions that are found in the history of mankind, they are really variations on the same principle. And the principle is the lie that Satan infused, injected into the human race in the Garden of Eden. When the scripture speaks of the world, it is speaking of the system that arose out of man's attempt to make the lie work. Now, um, the trouble with all of that, if you've just heard what I said, every revolution that takes place among humans is but a variation on the same thing, which is the lie, which deals with the heart, the core of the human. And it well, then all revolutions end like a wet firework on the Fourth of July they, they just end up going nowhere, though it be maybe a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years. but it 's got in it the twist that makes them really basically the same they all revolutions among humans are attempts to make the lie work better. And, of course, it doesn't. But but Jesus, now this is the difference. He's not just another revolution. Jesus is the revolution, the revolution that is utterly other than any other revolution that has been known in the history of mankind. Jesus is that revolution. And let me say very carefully, that revolution is not in what Jesus said, primarily, as many would think. He said some revolutionary things, that makes him a revolutionary, no, I'm not saying that. It's not in what he said, nor in what he did. Jesus himself, the revolution is in who Jesus is. And then we move to what he says and what he does. But Jesus himself is the revolution. Hear me. The gospel, this good news that caused all this kerfuffle is the news that God himself, God the Son, has actually entered into the human race. Authentically, for real, he has joined into our human situation. He has come into our darkness, the darkness of the lie, which produces the great illusion. He came where no other revolution has ever come, he has come where no human would ever come for the human outside of christ believes the lie to be final truth jesus came into the lie and he declared humankind lost and that word would mean they are adrift adrift on a vast ocean of darkness they don't know who they are they don't know where they're going he described them lost in the lie that Satan told the race, lost in all the illusion that comes with it, and the disillusion. Lost, which meant that he declared them beloved, precious, and he has come to save mankind, to come where we are and save us. And so Jesus' revolution is that he exposed the lie by which humankind ordered life, The lie, the system by which man understood things would work, and he exposed it as a lie, the lie, bringing death, and in so doing revealed that God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit is grace, which means by the very nature of God he is ever giving of him himself god becomes the ultimate gift to the human race and that gift is that god is love and a love of an order infinitely beyond the human kind of love that message turned the world on its head turned everything upside down caused confusion chaos which turned into rage which turned into attacking these believers. You see, once I will believe upon Jesus, well, what does that mean? It means that I recognize he has united himself to us and and, uh, united me to him, which makes me part of the revolution. For I'm joined into him who is the revolution. It, It means that when we say church or believers, we're really speaking of counterculture. I Notice I didn't say subculture. We are a counterculture. We're over against the culture of this world system. And the difference is the world system believes the lie that they shall be as God, that they own their world and their life, They understand the meaning of life to be in that lie. And in Christ, we understand the truth that he is the Lord and he is the life. Revolution. And of course, revolution brings with it this kind of confusion and chaos and anger on the part of those who see their world slipping away from them. The result, and I, in the light of what I've just said, this might make more sense. In Jesus, then, the New Testament continually speaks in terms of the word new. Have you noticed that? New. It's, it's the word that's all over the place. And in the Greek language, the word new does not mean latest in a series. That is, it doesn't mean this is new, and we had something like this before, but it's now become old because we've got the latest edition, like the new car in your driveway, or, or the, the new cornflakes where they took out what was there and put in something that wasn't, and it, it's new. No, this word means new in kind, It means so new, you've never seen this before, you couldn't imagine it before. It's beyond your brain to think of it, and here it is staring you in the face. Jesus, I say, is the revolution that has brought about a new. And so the Bible speaks of a new man or new mankind. Think about that. Don't read that quickly. Jesus in his resurrection, has brought about a new mankind. A mankind, a new, shall I say, Adam. The Bible calls it the last Adam, but it means a a, a new race. Yes, this is, uh, maybe I hadn't thought of that, that uh, being a Christian isn't going to church every Sunday and uh, getting involved in the, you know, pea pie supper. and uh, no. It's not even involved in giving out tracks at the airport. This is you becoming part of a body of people who are described as the new mankind. And then it calls about a new covenant, a relationship with God never dreamed of before. It speaks of his bringing about a new creation. And, of course, when it talks about us, it says a new birth. Oh, don't say that quickly. You know, people just say, uh, have you been born again, as if that's the most normal thing. That, that is the marvel. That is the wonder. Do you realize it? A new birth to become part of a new creation and a new mankind. Your life is described in Romans 6 as the new, newness of life. I summed up in, in Revelation twenty-one five, where Jesus says, "Behold, I make all things new." Well, there you have it. That—that's a revolution. Please understand. I, I'm going rather fast, but I, I don't want to uh, leave you behind. Uh, it, this is newness, totally newness, and and we now, as believers are so one with jesus that he described us as not of this world even as he let me read it is in john chapter 17 and he's speaking to his father it's the great prayer that he prayed and he said they speaking of you and i they are not of the world that is they don't find their origin in this world system even as I am not of the world, did you, even as I am not of the world, and then, further down he he rather I'm sorry, further back up, it says, "I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, and so he says, the world hates them, even as they hate him, because they are this counterculture." They are not of this world system. They are, in fact, of finding their origin in Jesus, who is God with us. That's where it is. I, I find that amazing, you know, that, that, that this good news, this body of truth, who is actually person, Jesus among us by the Holy Spirit, that reveals the grace and the givingness of God love to us has been released into the world when Jesus rose from the dead and gave his Holy Spirit and released according to the most ancient prophecies of scripture to all families of the earth. Okay. We're going to explore that in weeks to come, but Tonight I want to explore just one aspect which we've got to begin here. And that is the personal seeing of that. When I see the grace of God, when I see the love of God, that's when I first come up against this. They've turned the world upside down because to begin with it is my world that this message turns upside down. And I'm going to use a, a a story that we have at least touched on before, but I want to not go into the details of the story. I want to look at this specifically in light of this. Turn the world upside down. And that is the fourth story of Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. In your leisure time, not now, but you can read Luke 15, verse 25 to the end. It's about the elder brother. You see, there's the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then what we call the prodigal son. But there's the fourth story, that of the elder brother. And really, that's what the whole of that chapter is about. How this action of God's grace the beauty of his giving to us that the beauty of his love and gentleness and kindness and goodness that is poured out limitlessly to us how how does the human heart look at that here he comes we call him the elder brother coming home and hearing as he's across the fields. It comes on the breeze, the sound of music, the sound of, what, laughter. One might say riotous a noise. There's people here that are shouting and there's dancing in the air. And the closer he gets, there's the smell of roast beef to boot. Something's going on that he knows nothing about. And there appears to be a kind of what upset? You could almost say angst or anxiety. What's going on that's happening without my permission? I, I did not sanction joy today. That's the kind of chap he is. Um, he's not a nice piece of work, this fellow. Um, and and he's getting upset that there are people happy that are essentially happy without his permission um he holds the place of great authority in in the village as as along with his father they own apparently most of what's there and so as he comes close to the house and now you you can't miss it there's there's music and dancing in the air you can possibly see it from where he's standing and and he, he confronts and i use that word carefully it shows me something about the fellow. The word in the language of the New Testament is, I suppose a, we could actually translate it, in your face. He comes to what what I believe is a child. The word in most of your Bibles would say servant, but the, the word I think is better translated as child. And I think if I was going to a third world, mid-eastern village, if I wanted to know something, I'd ask the kids, because those children in a third world village are omnipresent. If you want to know the gossip, ask the children. And, and and so but the word is confronts and it's in your face. There's a sort of a bully feeling to it. It's it's he, he speaks to the child as kid, you're, you're down there. I demean you. Speak to me, tell me. Oh, that sort of thing, you know, it's a nasty word, but hold it in mind. He says, What well, what what's going on here? What's this noise and of course, the child knew exactly what was going on. And he reports it perfectly. And he says that y- your brother has returned home. You know that brother that went off all those years ago? And, and, and you've heard all the rumors of what he did. You know that brother, the loser, the one that squandered our fortune and dragged our name in the dirt? That That brother, well, that brother, your brother has come home, and your Father has received him safe and sound. Now, that word we've translated there in Luke 15 as safe and sound. It is. That's a good translation, actually. But the word that was used there is shalom. Some of you know that word. It's an Old Testament word. It means peace, but nothing like our Western world peace... It, th- this means your father has received him reconciled. That is, there is total peace between them. Your father has totally forgiven. Your father has received him so that now the relationship between them is sound or healthy. It's alive. It's full of joy. Huh-huh. And the party you're hearing is in the honor of your returned brother. Your, your father has thrown the party to tell the world that we are in shalom. We are in a relationship. We are reconciled. And at that point, this older brother flies into a rage, and there's no other word for it. You've got to get inside his head here. Get it right inside. Get get inside where his thoughts come from. Why does he fly into a rage when he knows that there's a homecoming party for his brother that has been sponsored by the Father? Why? (laughs) To him, these are unanswerable questions. His brother... That brother, we call him the prodigal. But the brother that has gone to a far country, the country of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and there squandered good Jewish money on vile Gentiles and, and, and not in a good business investment even, but, but in, in squandered in, in parties and drunkenness and whores and wild living. Kids come home, crawling home to father. Probably run out of money, and you're celebrating him. You're giving him a hero's welcome. Get inside his head. He can't. He can't grasp that. You 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 are feasting him. Well, what, what, you're honoring him. That's ridiculous. He deserves a beating. He deserves reprimand in front of the village. He deserves to be shamed as he shamed our name. Has the world gone mad? Has my father gone insane? At that point, let me put it, his world has been turned upside down. That, that's it. Right at that minute, what we read in the Acts of the Apostles when he heard the sound of the father's grace toward that younger brother, when he heard the sound, even the smell of the beef of covenant love that was made toward his brother, that's when he lost it. It's when he lost it. My world has been turned upside down. The news of grace and love caused his world to fall apart. And when I say world, I don't just mean uh, the outwards of it. I mean the system by which his world worked. It's very important, very important. When when the Bible speaks about the world, it's talking about a system. It's talking about the way it works. For many of you, this might be nonsensical, but see, when I was being raised inside uh, the church, um, my my church always was afraid that we would become entangled with the world. Oh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the world and it didn't take very long for one who was around us folks to find out by the world it was meant that you didn't well i mean the world was a matter of drinking alcohol of course smoking probably going to see Uh, pg-14 or r-rated movies that was the world for sure and 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 it depended on the clothes that you wore especially if you were a woman And, and as to jewelry well and on and on it went all these outward things right down to the car you drove that was the world get a life that's not the world. The world in the scripture is a system of thinking. It's a system of believing. The world is a system that actually flourishes best inside the church. And I'll be frank, inside many of those churches that defined the world as I've just said, actually the world was alive and well because the system the way of believing, that that's the world. And this man's world, this elder brother, has gone mad. His father seems to lead the insanity. And it was all because he heard the sound and now the message from this child of love and grace. It was the love and grace that Jesus was portraying in the parable that shattered the foundation upon which this man's life was built. His meaning to getting up in the morning disintegrated. The glue that held everything together has now melted and it's all falling apart. What on earth is this system this belief system that constitutes the world in Scripture. The world, or as Galatians call it, this present evil world. What, what, what is it? What is it that this character sees falling apart? What was it in the Acts that they says you've destroyed the very foundation of our society? To put it very simply, as we have before, The world system uh, sometimes is called law. Um, I I would contrast it to the word covenant or to the word Holy Spirit as contract. You see, contract. Some of our Middle Eastern and Far Eastern friends would call it karma. It, it, It means if, hear me carefully, if you do good stuff, because now that, that's up for grabs, because usually the good that you do is defined by the people doing it. So it's a sort of you, you keep moving the goalposts. It's, it's the people doing good that define what good is. Is You know, they made up the rules and now they keep them. And so, well, if you keep the rules and you are good, then you're going to be rewarded and honored. Now, notice that's the world system that works pretty much in wherever you touch it. Whether you're talking of education, you're talking of the business world, you're talking of the factory where you work, that's pretty much how it works. And, of course, the flip of that is if you do bad, if you're a loser, then you will be punished and dishonored. Let that sink in. That's putting the world system very simply, maybe too simply, but we've got weeks to talk about this. And inside that system, you live by comparison. If you're on the do-good side, then you're looking for someone to compare yourself to. It's amazing because even if you're on the side which most of the do-good say you're a loser, even among those losers, it still works. It's, it's comparison. That is, the do-good will look at the do-bad and compare themselves. But even among, I say, the do badders, they compare themselves to each other. And it all comes out the same, that I thank you, O oh God, I'm not as other men. That is, those who do good look at the do bad and say, I would never do anything like that. You do understand, that's below me to do that. I mean, well, uh, I, I, I can never imagine how anyone would do that. I am shocked. It's a scandal to even hear of what they're doing. You you, you ever heard that kind of stuff? And as I say, it works all the way down so that even two thieves can compare one to the other and say that I wouldn't go that far. Um, And have you noticed also within the comparison uh, there arises envy. if, If I find someone that really is better than me, then I envy them, avoid them because they're upsetting me. I begin a search to find faults, or if you're a politician, you say, have you got any dirt on these people? And once you find it, then you advertise it to destroy them. That's the world system. It's a world of lies and corruption to hide and to mask and to present oneself as better than the other. Yeah, but it's all gone to pieces, hasn't it? Because here is one that most of the village surely would have called the loser. He's the scoundrel. He's the chap that did everything wrong, made all the wrong decisions, and now he comes crawling home, and what does he get? A hero's welcome. He's lauded, applauded, praised, and honored, and sits there at the feast beside his father good grief what's gone wrong what's happened see to the elder brother that's not justice oh boy that's the word isn't it justice that's not justice that's not shalom that's not where everything is right no He lived in a world that he might say was balanced. That is, I do good and I'm honored, accepted, applauded, rewarded. He does not do good. He actually does bad. He's a loser. He's wasted his life. He's immoral. He's wrong. So he shall be punished. And that makes it right, doesn't it? You say, I do good, I'm praised. He does wrong, he's punished. I'm honored, he's dishonored. It bal- That's life. That's how it works in his world. That's justice. That's shalom. That to him was peace. Everything's right, isn't it? I'm applauded, he's not. I'm rewarded, he's not. Why? Because I'm good and he's not. Now I feel good. Now, I I feel my life has meaning and purpose. He's the kind of fellow, if you ask him about heaven, it would include that all the bad people are in hell. He couldn't enjoy heaven without knowing people not like him are somewhere else. It's all balanced out. That's the system of this world. And now, it's falling apart around him. everything he hears in these moments, everything he sees, a city-wide welcome to the loser that's been sponsored by his father. Do you understand this poor fellow? He's adrift in a storm. It's chaos. His world has been turned upside down by the message of grace and love. The sound... Upon the air of grace and love and joy, collapses his world. Do you understand that? He feels out of control, you know. The gear shifts don't work, the steering wheel spins around. Well, I, nothing is in order, nothing's working. It's as if he pulled on his parachute cord and it didn't open and now he's free falling. Nothing he ever believed is working anymore. That's where his rage came from. You say that's a rage. It's the rage of fear, you know. It's the the dog that bites you when when he's drowning and afraid and you're trying to rescue, but it's it's terrified so it bites you. This is a rage of a man who is terrified. Nothing in his world makes sense anymore. His own life now, in the light of this, doesn't make sense. And if he says that his life is right, then everything he's seeing, including every person he knows, including his father, they're all insane and wrong. Oh boy. This character has never really known his father, even though he lived with his father, worked the ranch with his father. But he he tells his father later on in the story that all these years he said, I served you as a slave. Come on. Not only was this elder brother son, the eldest son to boot, But also, the property was divided when the younger son went away. So, this eldest son actually owns the rest of the property and and now is working it along with his father. They're they're co-partners together. A slave? What kind of an idiot are you? You are the co-owner. You are the master of this ranch. You're resenting your father as a cruel boss? What's the matter with you? He gave you the whole ranch. He is your father, and he treats you as his co-worker, co-earner. But he heard every word his father said through the twisted mind that he had that he was a slave And therefore, every word his father said, he interpreted as an order, a a command. There's no relationship, no fellowship. And now he's added to that list insane. His father is going mad. He arrives right at the house. Now, if he's coming home from the fields, it was already late afternoon, early evening. I mean, the prodigal had come home that morning by noon and so on, and the the feast had to start, and it's now underway. So by the time he arrives at the house, it must have been early evening and darkness is coming on. And so the house stands out as a beacon of light, not only the sound of extreme joy and the smell of a covenant animal being eaten, but light. And outside, the darkness was made more intense by the light in the house, you you understand. That. And outside on the porch, that's where the servants, or what would in those days be called slaves, but absolutely nothing to do with our American you know, slavery of the past. The, the, this, this is better word, maybe servant but they, they were the servants slash hired servants, slaves. They were on the porch outside waiting for orders. And this elder brother stands outside. That is, he stood in the darkness, more intense because of the light of the feast inside the house. He stood with the slaves and he's going to say in a moment, that's where I belong. That's where I belong I'm not part of that insanity of honoring those who do not deserve it, who haven't earned it. He's going to say, he's not my brother, which means, of course, then you're not my father. He sees the chasm between them. Look, Jesus is telling this story not just as a bedtime story. He's telling it to make us understand this this fact that there is no connection between the grace of God the utter givingness of God heart that reveals to us the unlimited love that he has for us there is no connection there to law and working by rules and formulas and seeking acceptance in my behavior and how I present myself. There's no connection. I say that because there are some people, bless their hearts, they try to make a connection. I've actually heard preaching that says that the two have got to be mixed. I heard one preacher say you take a step of law and then a step of grace, and that's how you know. This elder brother, as surely as those characters in, in Act 17, they, they got it I' know very negatively, but they got it. they understood it perfectly, got their pulse on the heart of the thing, that there's no connection. If grace and love is the truth of God, then our world is destroyed. Our whole system is a lie. But if that isn't the case, then we are the truth and the grace and love of God are the lie. You see, there's, there's, there's no middle ground here. There's no mixture. There's a grand canyon set between and he stood there and he won't go in. Jesus told other parables Um well, I won't refer to them now. You might remember the word, though, that I'm getting at. He he ends those other parables, he told, by saying persons were in outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you heard that expression? Well, you've got it right here. The outer darkness is a person who prefers the darkness of the lie and the system of this world to the light and joy and merriment of the grace and love of God. They're in an outer darkness. They're outside of the light by their choice. And at that same time, there's gnashing of teeth, which is a Hebrew expression for rage. And it's that rage of fear and also rage that you're tearing my world apart. And yet it's weeping, which is the the terrible sense of aloneness and disconnection and separation that comes with the lie. He stood outside, almost saying, these are my people. But in so doing, and we miss this in the West, so let me take you into the Middle Eastern culture of the New Testament in so doing, he violated a custom that, well, I, I, can, I, I can't find words here in the West to describe what he did. It, it, it was beyond words. It, it was the greatest dishonor and shaming of his father that any Middle Easterner would know to do. You see, the elder brother of a family At the time of a feast or party gathering, the elder brother had one role to play. And I say that it was written in custom that was immovable, inviolate. There was no debate about it. The elder brother becomes the head servant of the house. He may be the elder brother. He may be the the father's son and most important in the family. But at a feast, he becomes the head servant. He becomes the maitre d. He floats the whole feast to make sure everybody has their seat. You have your food. You have your drink. You're happy. You're happy. And I'm making it so. And then, uh, of course, above all else, he would serve his father at the feast, and he would serve to the nth degree the honored guest, which in this case was his younger brother. And he refuses to go in. And I say, in Middle Eastern custom, that was to dishonor the father. It was spitting in his father's face. It was shaming the father, insulting the father it meant to despise the honored patriarch of the family and it's spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy as also in the book of Proverbs the son that dishonors the father and the mother is big big stuff i know this doesn't make sense in the west where where kids continually dishonor their parents but in in the middle east to do this this very thing that the son was doing would mean the other servants would arrest him. Yes, arrest him. Put him in some lockup until the feast was over. The father would not even get involved. That, that would uh, be to give some statement of uh, what, position to this son in, in his dishonor. And so the father would continue the feast and the servants would deal with this crazy kid. That was the father's honor, you say. That's the father's right. You understand? His patriarchal honor ha- ha- has been marked. Y- you understand? People have done the uns- The justice. The justice was that the father must punish this son And it would be a punishment that is in line with how he has treated his father at this so public time. And in so doing, he would restore his position as the patriarch of the family. And the village, I mean, now suddenly the the music dies down and, and people stop talking. They're, well, what's going on? They've never seen anything like this. This is... What this elder son was doing was worse than what the prodigal son had done. And they wait for the order to be given, to arrest, to take to lockup, wait for punishment. But it doesn't come. And people get edgy, uneasy. But what's happening? The father's been insulted and he's not doing anything. And then it says, words that have been a bombshell to those who first heard them it says the father goes out the father goes out gets involved that the, the father personally go he doesn't send servants he doesn't send them out to arrest he gets up from the table and personally goes out into the darkness where his oldest son is, goes out to the porch, which is the slave area, servant area, to this son who feels he belongs with the slaves. And he goes out into the uh, a tornado of words, The rage of his son, the disgust of his son toward the grace and the love that his father expresses. He goes out to his lost son. For even though this one has not run away to a far country, he is further away from his father than all of the above parables. He stands there the blows of the elder brother's words. They're like knives and blows as he basically curses his father for the kind of life that he lives and the insanity of what's going on in this place. And the father, I mean, read the story. We don't often read this story, actually. Read it. He doesn't answer. Uh, And if you're you're following this Mid-East understanding, he's got to say something. He doesn't. He receives them. Every word that this oldest son hurls at him, hurtful, painful, blows of words, raging words, he simply receives it. And responded with the word entreated him. Remember I said when the elder brother came and he confronted that child, saying, I'm the boss here, you tell me. Okay, this word is, it's the same word, but instead of in your face, it's by your side. The father doesn't come in his son's face. He doesn't answer blow for blow, word for word, threat for threat. He comes alongside, gentleness and seeks to open the heart of his son to see the love that he has for him. It's the word for reconciliation. It's the word for embrace. It's the word for winning a person's heart. What a father. And Jesus is saying, this is what God the Father is like. uh, you understand this this grace, this love? He's not interested in punishing this son that has dared to rise up against his patriarchal majesty. He's not interested in saying, you, you have sinned against my majesty and now I must punish you until everybody knows what a powerful man I am. He's not interested. He's not interested in beating this stupid kid until, terrified and afraid, he will give some sort of false obedience. Not interested. Not interested. All he wants is to put his arms around this kid and to have a relationship of love. That's justice as far as the father goes. Very different kind of justice to the one the son understood as justice. Jesus is saying that God's justice is that he makes everything right between your heart and his. That he forgives you, forgives you to the nth degree and draws you into relationship with him. This gives an interesting insight into the love of God, the love of this father. And I'll put it this way, this father owned His love, that is, His love belonged to Him. The Father's love belonged to the Father. He owned it. And nobody out there could control it or change it or alter it. His love was not given to the Son because of the Son's good behavior. The love was given because of who the father was. The son's behavior didn't control his love. Father owned his love and gave it to the son. Nor did his love depend on that love being returned or responded to. For the son didn't return his love, but his love kept coming and coming and coming and refused to give up, refused to go away. See, human love depends on the beauty of the person beloved, uh, beauty of uh, mind or personality or whatever. But but because of who they are, then, then they're loved. And human love depends upon that love being returned. That is, love is not owned by the giver. It's controlled a lot by the person given to. God owns his love. You can't control God's love. You can't make God love you and you can't stop Him loving you. God is love. He doesn't love you because of anything that you've done that grabbed His attention. Nor does He stop loving you because you refuse to respond. His love comes and comes and comes and will not stop coming, embracing us. And He turned to this one and He said, Well, in our Bibles, it says, my child. but The actual original language that is spoken here, the father turned to this person who is spewing out his rage, and he said, and I quote the original language where he says, my dear little boy. It's something you would say to a two-year-old, a three-year-old. It's what you would say when you took your little boy and put him on your lap. The father says, my dear little boy. How blind you are! In fact, what he's saying, didn't say that, but he's saying you're my child, you're not slave, you're my child, and therefore you are loved as my dear little boy. And 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 you say that there's a separation between us, that that you know we we you don't know me, yeah. You're always with me, and the word with is a covenant word. It it, it means we're bound together. You might be blind to that. doesn't change it from my side, he said. And all that I have is yours. I gave it to you aeons ago. And You can't earn what's been given. You can't get a reward for good work when it all belongs to you. You know, Jesus told the story because... This is exactly what Jesus did. This, this is the revolution. This is it. That God, God the Son, coming as the full image and revelation of God the Father, in the fullest upon and uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this person, Jesus, enters into our world of darkness and lies where we have no concept of who he is, where we believe the lie that we are separated from him, where we see ourselves as the slaves and we're angry and rage. And he comes into that. And when he did, those who were the representatives of the human race laid on him their rage and their anger and cursed him and said, crucify him which to any Jew men damn him to hell. And out from all that they said and they did, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He entreated them. Oh, he's, he's God, do you understand? He's God and he could have threatened them. He could have called down punishment. Instead, he entreated and said, Father, forgive them. And he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In all that human did to him, he forgave, he demissed, and he took away sin. And in resurrection, carried human into the feast of the Father. The revolution that turned the world inside out and upside down. It broke the world system and brought into the world something they'd never seen before. Brought about a newness. The world turned a corner and it can never do a U-turn and go back. God has entered the world and the revolution is. It's interesting. There's no end to that story. Did you notice it just stops? It, it's odd, odd. It, it's you feel well, yeah. what happened next? But that the story's over. It, it leaves one uneasy, you know, edgy, sort of upset. What? What? Where do we Where do we go from here? Is it because our own world has been turned upside down? Is it because in this elder brother we do see ourselves, more so than in the prodigal, more so than in the sheep and the coin. See myself in this this man, for he so perfectly reveals the world system. And we, we realize Jesus turns that over, smashes it, finished, over. Is it is it possible we feel Edgy, because we realize we're in a free fall. Everything I believed, everything I thought was normal and right is gone. I'm a free fall. Because that free fall ends in the arms of the Father. So what does the son do? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the end of the story is me and you. Maybe that's where it ends. What do we do? And that's why the New Testament calls it dying to this world. Because you recognize this world, thats the lie. I, I die to that and my flesh which relates to it, I die. And I rise again to this newness of life. The revolution has begun. And now the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our understanding to see clearly, to have insight, to see the grace and the love that has forever changed this world. So I bless you. So it is.